0: Rank podcast. I'm your host, Rami Rank, and let's get things started today. My guest is Stuart Pierce. Stuart is a legendary master of voice and presence coach. His clients have included folks such as Eddie Redmayne, Matthew Good, Hugh Bonneville, Mark Rylance, Margaret Thatcher, and Diana, Princess of Wales, among others. He's the author of The Alchemy of Voice, The Heart's Note, The Angels of Atlantis, and most recently, Diana: The Voice of Change. Yeah, I could go on and on with his incredible resume, but then we'd have nothing really to talk about. So on that note, Stewart, welcome to the show. How are you today? Hey, Rami. It's great to be here. Thank yeah. you for inviting me. Oh, you're very welcome. It's really great to have you here. And, you know, first of all, this is very exciting. This is the first international interview that I've done for the show. And I'm very excited and really, truly honored to have you here, you know, at least virtually. And I'd like to start at the very beginning of your story, because the way I've heard you tell it, you were mute for two years as a child, and I, which is fascinating on its own. But something that I didn't understand was, for you, was this a conscious decision, or was it something that just kind of happened? No, it was it was a conscious decision. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. just a,
1: a deep, not a conscious decision. That's very sophisticated and very adult. Mm-hmm. It was um, it was a sensory awareness that I just needed to shut up because whatever I said. Apart from for my loving mother, but whatever I said, the world didn't enjoy listening to
0: really so from from what ages were you not speaking then
1: um seven eight nine it was about it was about six and a half seven when I shut up. I just self muted
0: interesting, so when you say that the world wasn't interested in hearing what you were saying, I mean were you just getting like constant pushback from family or friends, or was it, you felt like you were ignored or what, what had happened um
1: I had, a, I had a vocabulary and a, and a linguistic that was growing where I was seeing the preternatural world. I was seeing the supernatural world. Mm-hmm. And the way that I was brought up was that my father worked for the British royal family. So um, he was a high-ranking servant. And therefore, we had accommodation in royal palaces. Now, I mean, you're dealing with very old buildings. I mean, mm-hmm. the one that we first started in was a really old building, <laughs> okay. going all the way back to the 13th century. Oh, wow. uh, and so if you're in old buildings, there are many voices. You know, they have history. Yeah. And of course, with the, particularly with this royal family, the heritage goes back a 1,000 years. And mm-hmm. so there are these extraordinary works of art that have been collated by all the kings and queens through centuries. And there they are hanging there. So all of these things talk to me. Really? And so I spoke about what I was seeing, thinking that everybody saw what I was seeing, seeing. And I couldn't, I soon discovered that they weren't. And there was a lot of disapprobation about the way that I was fanciful, too imaginative, mm-hmm. hypersensitive. Um, and we now know that I was synesthetic. Now, synesthesia is a crossover of the senses. So in other words, I was seeing sound.
0: Interesting.
1: And it, it, compounding all of this was the fact that I was... Uh, I found reading extraordinarily difficult and forget computation. Now I know I'm profoundly dyslexic.
0: Got it. Got it.
1: And so what's interesting is that these forces then led to challenge my will to develop a sense of personal power so that I could grow through the years and develop the skills that I've developed, which are all, of course, couched in tremendous empathy.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I didn't realize that, that, you know, your first, uh, you know, true, uh, you know, melding with the supernatural was at an age this young. And so was that something then that you you kind of internalized that this is something that's part of your life, you know, at that age? Well, I, I mean, I switched off because
1: all it did was create disapprobation,
0: you know, mm-hmm. and I... I mean you know I kept on hearing you are nothing and you
1: will always be nothing and inside I was thinking I think I'm something <laughs> but I didn't know what that was and of course how could how could a child articulate that yeah. in the face of such fortunately I had an immensely loving mother who grounded me you see mm-hmm. so she was my protectress all the way through until well, t- to my early adulthood, you know, my father died when I was 22. Mm-hmm. And although that was, you know, that's a tragic thing to happen. It was actually a great release, because then, you know, it allowed me to become the person that I am, rather than being the person that he wanted me to be.
0: So did you feel then, you know, for most of your childhood, that your father was kind of, you know, holding you back and wanting? Oh, to- God.
1: Yeah, I mean, He was impossible. Yeah. Was impossible. Really?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, God bless him. He was impossible. But it was
1: purely and simply because he was fearful, you see. Now I see all of this in my maturity. He was absolutely fearful. And because of the way he worked, he was very seldom around. He was always, he he worked uh, as an aide to the Duke of Edinburgh, who's the Queen's husband, you know, so they were always away always, always away. So dad would always disappear for like two months. Oh, wow. And then he would come back with presents of where he'd been mm-hmm. and, ho- and movies about tiger shoots in India, climbing Machu Picchu, arriving in Acapulco, going to Buenos Aires, you know, it said, And so, you know, these were extraordinary because we were able to see what dad had been doing in, hitherto, yeah, but at the same time, we couldn't wait for him to go away so he'd come back and bring more presents. So he was always very absent, which meant that during early, adolescence. And my brother, I have a brother who's a year and a half older, we were both very early, early pubescent. Uh And so what comes with that, of course, is a release of testosterone. And as we know, tremendous will. So we use that will. My mother was very, very freeing, you see, but dad was very restrictive. And so willfulness really frightened him. And therefore, he became draconian in his discipline. He was a war hero. He was an ex-military, you know, oh my God, it was really <laughs> really draconian in the disciplines. Um, and, and of course, what it did was, you know, now I can reflect on it because I'm in my late 60s. Yeah. I can see the, what the significance of what that was all about. And in, on a soul level, why I chose it, because it enabled me to become the, um, you know, after the, the suffering the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as Hamlet yeah. puts it. Yes. I then began to develop s- strength
0: and saw the perspective of what life is all about. That's amazing. And so, I, I mean, I guess then, so that leads me then to my next question, which is, you, you eventually become an actor. But, you know, you're telling me that, you know, your father, you felt like he was holding your back. Was your father still alive when you started acting?
1: Oh, yes. I went against him. But I, I, I followed through. I remember the age of 16. when He said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to become an actor. And, you know, pirate, firework display suddenly <laughs> yeah. took place. An atomic bomb went off. Um, he, I, I'm not having a son as an actor, <laughs> nine, ten, unim- unemployed at any given moment in time, and most of them are queer. And I, and I said, you mean like the two men at your dinner table last night, you know, who were obviously having an affair. And, um, and he, he hit me around the head. So I thought, oh, God, he said, there must be something else you want to do. And I said, I've always wanted to teach. So actually, I trained as an actor teacher and got a qualification as a teacher uh-huh. to teach to teach drama, uh, speech and drama in schools. And in the United Kingdom at that time, there was a huge, this is all, what, late 60s, early 70s, Mm -hmm. that there was a huge movement towards theatre in education, yeah. So there were young actors like myself going into mostly secondary education, into high school, mm-hmm. and teaching kids in drama class or in theatre productions mm-hmm. of how they could become better people. And so that's what it really was all about. So I honoured him and got the qualification and taught for a year, nearly had a nervous breakdown, God. <laughs> working in inner city schools, you know, uh, the Blackboard yeah. Jungle. Oh my gosh, and, uh, and then released myself of that and, and just dove into professional theatre. And we were very fortunate in the United Kingdom at that time because there were 52 repertory theatres open, mm-hmm. which is where we learned our craft. Because, you see, you go to a repertory theatre somewhere in the provinces, I mean, right. away from the centre of London, and, um, and you would either do weekly rep by monthly rep or monthly rep. And so, in other words, you'd be rehearsing a play during the day and performing another one at night. Mm-hmm. Weekly rep was schizophrenia time, because it's, that's where the line, we don't mind what you do, as long as you don't bump into it, just don't bump into the furniture. Because <laughs> you know? so, it was really difficult to learn the play. You know, after a month, of course, it's much easier. So I learned, as many of we, you know, my peers are people like Ian McKellen and Judy Dench and Patrick Stewart and, and the Royal Shakespeare Company, which is what my alma mater was. You know, Yeah. Um, now time there, time is two, though, now there are two theatres. So where, where the kids go, mm-hmm. hell, you know, fuck alone knows, um, where the kids go today, because <laughs> yeah. you know, they, they, learn it, they learn it in situ. Yeah. So we, you know, we just pray that they have great directors yes, and great exactly. fellow actors, you know, leading actors that can mentor them or at least take them under their wings and show
0: them what to do. No, and I understand that. I mean, you you need that, and you know, if uh, you know, if the systems changed so much today. It's just you know i mean like entertainment in general has changed today even just from what it was 15 years ago just through the advent of the internet and all of this stuff and a lot of these guys are you know going up and self-training and self-creating their own product it's, it's a very different world than uh the old get into it and learn and move up system but so you know while you were so you uh, you, you join up with the royal shakespeare company you end up in new york after a tour you decide that you're going to stay there and become an actor and so for 10 years uh, you were acting professionally and then you land a Spielberg movie now. Uh, and that was going to be your big break. Now I'll get to, you know, why it didn't happen in a second, but I have to ask, which movie were you supposed to be in and what was the role?
1: Actually, it wasn't a Spielberg movie. Oh, was it? Was, it? Oh, who was it? I can't, you know, it's so long ago. I can't really remember. Oh. Um, and it was, it, the, the movie didn't go anywhere as it happened, So really? I sort of didn't miss out on it, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, movies come and go, you know. So when, when, you've, when you've had this sort of extent, you know, when I look back over my years, I don't wish to brag, but I, I've done so many different things that really the most important thing is, well, where are the jewels rather than experiences like that? The point is that the decision that I made, because, you know, we precursed the story, which is that there I was packing up in New York City to go to L.A., where we were going to be making a movie. Yeah. And um, and the telephone rang, and it was my brother saying, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know what I'm doing. I'm packing to move to Los Angeles. I'm going to become the greatest actor of the 20th century. <laughs> and he said, well, you need to know mum's got can- cancer. She's got three months to live. What are you going to do about it? And our father just died three, yeah. three years prior. And so in that moment, I realised that I... I mean, I had a very sacred relationship with my mother, that I had to honour that. So I let the movie go, was in breach of contract. That was another story. And went back to the United Kingdom and nursed her for a year. Uh, And then she passed, you know. And then, of course the universe was just extraordinary the wheel of fortune clunked around Mm -hmm. and then um you know here was this huge opportunity to work with margaret thatcher and to become involved in the education
0: of the young actor in this country and so i i mean i guess i'm just going to jump backwards a little bit but during those 10 years when you were acting did you miss teaching acting at that point no,
1: not at all. No, I mean, I was having an absolute ball. I loved it. I love it. I mean, I was very fortunate. I had great jobs and amazing actors, amazing actors. You know, acting as, an, as a profession has the lowest rate of suicide in all of the professions. The highest rate is
0: doctoring. I believe that. I absolutely believe that. So, Okay. So you're having a wonderful time and everything, but then, you know, after your mom dies, you know, I know you've said like you felt that studio would never hire you again because you're in breach of contract, but were you, were, did you want to go back to acting at that point? Or, I was in this hinterland. I didn't really
1: know what was going on. This monumental thing had just happened, you know. Mm-hmm. And out of the blue, there I was packing things up. You know, I was the youngest son and my brother had a was married with children yeah. and working hard. And I was sort of packing up goods and chattels. And the telephone rang and everything went into slow motion. And here was this remarkable woman, Cicely Berry, who was the voice director of the Royal Shakespeare Company saying, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm just being this. And she said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I've lost my agent. I've lost my manager. And she said, well, don't be so stupid. Come and teach for me. And I said, what? I'm an actor. And she said, no, 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 no. There's something about your voice. Mm-hmm. Now, that line is something that I've heard all the way from the moment at the age of 11, when my voice broke, people yeah. would say there's something about your voice. Now, when they said it, something lighted up an energy lighted up in their aura because i could see this so i went towards that oh there's something about your voice there's something so when she said there's something about your voice it was like this cosmic key oh then I'm not di- disappreciated, that I'm not disenfranchised, no. I'm not disassociated. There is something of value about me. And so I said, well, what do you mean, darling? And she said, well, come and teach for me. Be my apprentice. Mm-hmm. And then in the next place, she said, and this, this woman, I don't want to work with her. She's just taken over the Conservative Party. Go and work with her. And I said, <laughs> What? And she said, yes, go and work with Margaret Thatcher. And two weeks later, there I was walking into Downing Street to meet Margaret, who was an absolute ball. I mean, she was just amazing and a very kind lady. Of course, this was right at the beginning of her career as a yeah. politician. It was, she was not the Iron Lady then. The no. Iron Lady was something that came later on. And then a sort of, as we see, something grotesque happened mm-hmm. to her power. And... Um, I always knew Margaret as a very kind, generous, gracious lady, but as we saw politically, mm-hmm. she became very rigid, immensely Republican in her yeah. fervour, her political fervour, which was dogmatic and draconian. And I, I, I just feel that what was happening is that she was an extraordinary. She was a genius. Yeah she slept four hours a night she had a photographic memory she could read something and then go into the commons and deliver a speech with all of the fiscal references all of these number sequences like that i mean she was just extraordinary and there was nobody in her cabinet possibly largely because she, they were they were appointed by her but they were all men and there was nobody who could say oh margaret come on that's going a bit far Mm-hmm. They all kowtowed. Now, You're if you're with a genius, they, they're they very muscular. They have to be second-guessed. Yeah. And if you can't second-guess them, mm-hmm. then all, you know, we know the stories of Elon, Elon Musk. Yeah. We yeah. know the story of Steve Jobs, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're very remarkable. But it, it, they find it
0: very difficult to be human beings. yes. No, absolutely. And, and so I know that you talk about like, you know, that Margaret, you know, is a kind, generous and wonderful person. But, you know, when you when you get an assignment like that, you know, is that something just because it's kind of your bit, first big assignment in terms of, you know, a politician, I think, is that something that you found intimidating or because you grew up around royalty? Was this something that you're like, eh, kind of, I, I can just do this?
1: Well, I was wetting my knickers, of course, when I went <laughs> in. I mean, literally, you know, I was, I, you know, I was 30, whatever. And this was a huge opportunity. And could I do the job, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But I was well taught. I was well taught by my mum, And my mother always said, be still and ground yourself. I mean, as a child, she was always saying to me, you have two speeds, very fast, very slow, you must learn a middle. And so I would always listen to that common sense because I know what very fast meant, the fire in in me would just become unbridled. And as a result of that, chaos would ensue because I'd become non-present. Yeah. And because, I, you know, born under the sign of the bull, I became like a bull in a china shop. I was always falling over, breaking things, because I was non-present. And so I listened to Mom because she was just so wise. And I remember walking into those meetings feeling, I need to be as still as possible and just observe rather than in involving myself in the doing complex of doing, 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 doing. I've got to do something to impress. No, do the opposite. Just be still. Mm-hmm. And of course, by that time, I'd learned as an actor of how important it is to ground oneself, to feel weight, to feel gravity in one's body. And of Absolutely. course, they interestingly, they become the hallmark, those two textures have become the hallmark of all of the work that I do as a behaviorist you know, in, in training actors, you know, with some of my leading actors who call what I do the magnetic voice. Mm-hmm. It's all about stillness and wait. If you watch, for example, Mark, who is like my sort of foremost student uh, in terms of the the regime of professional acting, who is a genius himself, but I mean, you know, all of the stuff that he does on camera is just amazing. You look at the work he did with Tom Hanks in Bridge of Spies. I can't wait to see the next movie with Johnny. I've been wanting to work with Johnny for years because I think they're both so unusual, you know, that Mm -hmm. they're extraordinary, towering talents that, you know, they, they can often be very lonely when you're like this, you know. So finding, you know, workmates or soulmates can be very useful to the actor.
0: And I know that, you know, the soul is, you know, kind of a large focus of the work that you do when you're working with people, because, you know, the, the way I've looked at it, and the way I understand it is that, you know, for you, it's, it's not just about voice, it's not just about presence, but it's, it's a full holistic approach to who you are as a person and being able to grab a hold of that. Mm. Well, you see, actually, in essence, that's what our voices are.
1: And that's what our presence is. The only way that you can be present, uh, have presence, rather, is if you're present So what does that mean? Well, it's physiological. Am I really living with my senses absolutely open? Am I seeing whom I'm talking to? Am I feeling what my body is doing? Am I really hearing accurately? So it goes into the whole substance of what it is to be a Renaissance individual, because all of these skills were taught at times of great Renaissance. I mean, for example, what I teach is what the the Romans refer to as being persona, Mm-hmm. And persona means through sound. We use it in the generic root of the word personality, and when we say, "Oh, she has a really nice personality," we're really summing up the whole of her essence, the fabric of her being, which is her soul. That's beautiful. They also believe that sound was at the core of creation.
0: Interesting. How how are, how how is the the sound at the core of creation? This, this is just you know it, just fascinating to me. God
1: said, let there be light, and there was light. In the beginning was the word, and the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. That's Christian. The -hmm. same thing happens in Hinduism, Buddhism, with the great Aum. Mm -hmm. Within Within the Anasazi peoples, like the Hopi and the Tewa, they say that the spider woman sang and brought everything into creation. Or in the world of science, we talk about the Big Bang. Not the big silence, but the Big Bang. So to begin, that's what I'm talking about. You see, the very first thing that we engage in, if we're physically able, is that as we shoot out of our mother's birth canals, the first thing we do is go. <gasps> and that sound, you know, it says in esoteric doctrine that that sound goes off into the universe and onto the cosmos and reverberates or resonates forever.
0: So when you take a look at, you know, uh, the, the spirituality that, you know, you, you feel and you see in your life and that you employ in your work, uh, do you feel that it's um, almost pulling from, you know, many different religions or is there one, you know, specific doctrine that, you know, you were taught and you were mentored in and that you follow today?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, you can, you can hear that I have a very inquiring mind. Yeah. And so, one of the most important questions that has always been with me is why? Mm-hmm. And so, and I found very early on, as I was referring to earlier, that uh, my teachers were often not the best people to go to. Mm-hmm. So, I went to the University of Life, you know, because they would perhaps become in admiration of me on a certain level. But then I noticed that they would very quickly find ways of being able to ridicule or criticize, overly criticize. What do you mean you haven't read that? You know, And being the sensitive that I am, what what I would actually see is not feel that the word, Mm -hmm. but I would see the energy, do you see? And often those energies that were based in ire, that were based in anger would be really frightening to see.
0: Well, I'm sure. I mean, that, that's got to be terrifying for, uh, you know, a child, especially, you know, if you're not at the point where you truly, you know, understand what you're seeing and what you're experiencing. Yeah. And so oh, well, see,
1: for me also there was this there was this other being with me that was this being of light. And what I got from this being of light was pure love pure acceptance, pure protection. That was my guardian angel. So whatever else was going on, my guardian angel was always here. So that that being or that energy completely balanced out the darkness. But yeah, it was very difficult in childhood, which is why I shut up. Because for example, my father would get very angry. He was a very angry man. Mm -hmm. And um, when he became angry, for me, it looked like shards of glass, broken glass. Coming towards me in different colors, reflecting light. Yeah. And so I would do this. So I was, of course, thought to be mad. So I was taken off into psychiatric um, oh. help. Fortunately, um, a pediatrician came along, you know, a psychologist who was a pediatrician, and said, This child is not mad. This child is hypersensitive. Mm-hmm. Now, today, I'm sure I would have been told, no, he's borderline ADHD or borderline autistic. Yeah. you know, My behaviors were unusual, which is why my mother kept on saying, be still, be still, find stillness. You have the heebie-jeebies, she called it. Mm-hmm. You know, so she was always making less of the hugeness of what I was feeling, not to diminish, but just to contain right and she she would just hug me you see she would hold me very close to her body so i would you know this this expression that we use a lot today i would lean into you know yeah. we say oh i'm would you lean into this i would lean into her and become part of her and that was my protection
0: as a parent you know that, that's wonderful on your mother's side but it's it's weird to me at least you know it's almost like your mother and father were exact opposites in terms of you know how they treated you
1: yeah, my life has been full of dichotomy. <laughs> 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 oh, God. Well, well, I'm great. saying one thing and then they're saying another, you know. Um, you know and I always remember it very early on, um, tasks at school that we give to babies, you know, um, Mrs. Kelly was not there that day, and a substitute teacher was there. Oh, now we suddenly learn there's something called a substitute teacher, which, of course, we all know what that is. But as a child, it's like, who are you? Because we feel safe with, you know, Mrs. David or Mrs. Kelly or whatever. And the task was paint or draw your favourite thing. So I thought, what's my favorite? Oh, I know. God is my favorite thing. So I started to draw God. And this being came along and said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm drawing God. And she said, oh, don't be so stupid. And nobody knows what God looks like. And I said, well, if you give me a moment, you'll see him. <laughs> and of course, I was, I, was, I was, you know, punished in, terribly. And in those days, they used sticks to hit children. So I was caned mercilessly. So that's you begin to learn, shut up, you begin to learn, shut up, shut up, shut up, don't say anything.
0: Oh, God.
1: It's like how, you know, last evening I was watching The Handmaid's Tale, you know, oh, with Elizabeth, um, who's just extraordinary. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, that was just like my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
0: okay, that's, that, that's horrible. <laughs> if you're looking at that, that's your childhood.
1: Well, I mean, it was obviously it wasn't as recidivist as that because it wasn't a it wasn't a regime. It wasn't a political regime that altered the entire face of the culture. But you know, this is the the, Europe had just been through a world war, and Mm -hmm. I came along. You know, and people were in trauma, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so there was a lot of worry going on. Um, and people were trying to find ways of recovering life, you know. Right. At the same time, there was a great deal of jubilance because we were free from the possibility of this horrendous pressure from the Third Reich, from yeah. the Nazis. But, you know, and that was still in people's lives. I mean, you know, we, when we were traveling in the car, we would sing army songs from mm-hmm. the war, not pop songs,
0: Yeah, army songs.
1: Well, Keep the home fires
0: burning. It's like, that's what, that's what's in everybody's head, you know, and just, this is just me musing and curious. I mean, do you feel like, you know, when we do, and I'm optimistic that we will come out on the other side of Corona, do you feel like, you know, the world will be in a similar state of, you know, both, you know, release and stress and, you know, PTSD all at the same time again?
1: Will these social phenomenon be experienced? Is what yeah. you're asking? Oh gosh! Yeah. I mean, it'd be huge. We're, I think we I feel we're already experiencing it. You know the systemic, the systemic violence in relation to um, those. The, you know those people who have skin colour that is yeah. dark is one of the most horrendous things. But it's a replay of what took place in the 30s. Yeah. So there's evidently something that we need to return to as social animals to discover about how not to do that. The one thing that we have today, which we didn't have in the 30s or the 40s, was the agency of transparency. Because then, you know, we didn't have TV. So you would go to the movies to see 10 minutes of Pathé News. So you get 10 minutes worth of whatever was going on in the world. And therefore, whatever's happening in those camps was hushed up. What was, whatever's going on within the internment camps on the Mexican border today is yeah. fully publicized
0: through mass media.
1: So yeah. we can say, this must stop.
0: Yeah, it must it must, and uh, you know. Hopefully, when we have a new president, it will stop. But you know, unfortunately, I'm. Uh, I'd like to be optimistic. I'm not optimistic for the next uh, couple of months until uh, hopefully there's a change. Um, but anyway, well, what's wonderful
1: what, is that so many of you are finding what I'm calling the voice of change. Mm-hmm. You know, I think probably we're moving in our time towards the book that I just released called Diana. the change. And of course it's the beginning of a huge project which really started with Diana but then came very substantially around the time of #me too not when it was originally created by the wonderful lady who created and I'm forgive me I can't remember her name in this moment but when suddenly it became a publicized vehicle with Ashley stepping forward and then Meryl and Oprah step forward and so forth. So that so you know I was some of those ladies were clients of mine. So I was willing them to step forward in, and get real, which is the voice of change.
0: Yeah, voice and of so, And so, yeah, no, I, I do. Let's let's talk about Diana, about uh, Diana, the voice of change. Because one of the things that you know you talked about is that you know uh, you, you Diana had you know told you that you would be able to talk to the world, um, you know, when the time is right about your guys' relationship and your guys' work together. And so, what made you know now the right time? Because of Harry and Meghan. Got it. And so when when you heard about them and you saw that relationship and that marriage, was that, you know, the moment you just said in your head, like, this is it, this is time, this is her, all, all of her work, all of her impact on the world has built to this and Now it's time to talk about it and to begin to share.
1: Yes. And because the women of the world are finding their voices, you know, as we see, there is an arousal of the divine feminine everywhere. So there are some very remarkable women who are stepping forward and moving into leading positions around the world. For example,
0: Jacinta Arden in New Zealand.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. just she's,
0: she's, she's incredible. Like, I, I mean, it, it's, it's this, I got, I wish we had her type of strong leadership here in this country. I really truly do because she's somebody who has actually been empathetic, strong and has truly saved her country from this horrible disease. I mean, in 102 days, there have been uh, four cases, just of which were from a family the other day. And that's, I mean, to me, that's amazing. I mean, like, I wish we could talk about ourselves over here like that. I really, truly wish we could.
1: Well, you know, I'm convinced, and I know this is slightly prophetic, what I'm about to say, but I'm convinced that there is someone, there is a woman waiting somewhere in the wings Mm -hmm. who will step forward. You know, because what we're seeing in Jacinta is absolutely remarkable. Yeah. Now, the sisters are getting together. Do you know what I mean? So there is someone, we just don't know who she is at the moment. You know, for example, when we look at the phenomenon of, B- of Pete Judge, where did that come from?
0: Oh, my God. And how
1: we just became meteoric in his rise and how we were also accepting of his gayness and his husband and, you know, the whole thing, because he stood on that stage, whatever stage he was on in front of those cameras, and was so completely authentic and intelligent,
0: he From a 30, what is it, 34, 35-year-old man? Yeah, he's a young guy. I mean, it, it's, it wasn't even just beyond the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it was beyond just uh, more than the intelligence and the, uh, but there was a humility to him also. Yeah. There was yeah. there was a sense, you know, when you watched him, that this was somebody who respected and loved his country, who had served for his country, who, you know, felt that it was his duty to do this and that it's not for him. It's not for anything else other than to improve this place and bring it to what it truly could be. And that, like I was a Pete supporter and when he had to drop out of the election, I mean, that, that for me was a huge blow because I looked at him as a massive, you know, young, vibrant, positive voice of change. And when you see that, when you see that energy in somebody, I mean, you know, in some ways it, it is, it's its similar to, uh, to the power that Diana commanded.
1: So it's interesting, isn't it? Because what, the, the way that, you know, that's really what I um, umbrellaed by mm-hmm. saying authentic. That, and then you quickly came in and said, yeah, he had such humility. I feel that, you see, the only way we can be truly authentic is if we are humble. In other words, we contain the substance of our ego, which is a word that has really bad press today. But really what ego means is a healthy selfhood. And part of that is that we care and that we're humble and true. That's what authenticity really means. And when we see it, it has Huge authority, but it's gentle and it's gracious. Has a certain amount of charm and magic about it, and absolutely lasered. But it has a gentleness. It's part of another effulgence that arises out of the divine feminine, isn't it? Because it has a purity of that. He was like this choir boy that stepped forward, but with the articulation. Look at that voice! You know, that came right out of his heart, right out of his soul.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, when what was it? He learned uh, was it Norwegian because there was a book that he wanted to read. I know. I
1: mean, it's a touch of the savant, isn't it? Oh, absolutely.
0: So it's he speaks
1: seven languages, including Mandarin. Have you ever (laughs) tried to learn Mandarin? No, no, I can barely... Oh, speak. my God, Rami. You know, I, I, I've worked in China twice, both um, for the British government yeah, with the Chamber of Commerce in Beijing and Shanghai. And, you know, there I would be interpreted by the, the Chinese interpreter, of course. Yeah. And I would say, you know... I mean, I'm being ridiculous in this phrase, but, for example, all it needs is a bunch of carrots. And it would go, it would just go on and on and on yeah. and on. It's, and I said, why does it take so long? <laughs> you know, I'm used to my own flow and then yeah. suddenly you have to stop mm-hmm. you know, not say too much for the interpreter so that they can then compose the, the translation, as it were and i was told that it's because it's there are there so many clauses in mandarin chinese slightly different from um, uh, um, the, the, you know that that is spoken in hong kong The cantonese the name, cantonese thank you very much the name yes of which yes a moment um And I don't mean that by any means to uh, marginalize or to ridiculize Mm -hmm. the Chinese language. It's just, you know, the the idea with energy of sound. And it's sort of extraordinary when it goes on and on and on and on. (laughs) I thought they were completely disinterested, but they thought that I was the best thing since my (laughs) (laughs) bread. And they were sitting, they were all sitting on their cell phones. And the the listeners can't see what I'm doing. You can. And they typing away on their cell phones. And during the intermission of my presentation, I remember saying to the organisers, could you please take all the cell phones away from people? And they said, no, 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 no. And I said, why not? Because they're not listening to me, they're on their cell phones. And they said, no, 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 they think you're amazing. What they're doing is taking photographs of you and texting everybody. (laughs)
0: But isn't that such like just a today reaction to everything? It's like, like yes, I'm here in the moment by staring into my phone and telling everybody about what I'm hearing. I'm not missing anything yeah. at all by doing it that Yes, yes, yes.
1: And to go back to where we started yeah, in this yeah. um, segue, um, right at the very core of what I do is to, well, I use the premise of what great acting is all about because all great acting is a truth of feeling statement. If yeah. you believe it, you continue watching it. If you don't believe it, you either switch off your TV or your cell phone. If you're watching Netflix or whatever, um, or you leave the theater. You know, you just don't go back. But if you get somebody who is truly authentic, who is emanating the voice—the voice of change—being the you know the truth of feeling statement mm-hmm. that is intelligent and that has an expansive intellect associated with it, in the sense of. <clears throat> you can feel that it's a voice of great care and a voice of great understanding and a voice of great compassion in, ma- in understanding the macro possibilities of what the micro decision may be, then we're, we're magnetically drawn into it. Whereas the other voice, okay, I'm going to shock you and the listeners.
0: Okay. Uh, but,
1: I mean, you know the voice that I really hear so much of, you know what I'm saying I mean, it goes well, it's like you know uh, whatever whatever I mean you yeah. which is which is the voice of cerebralization isn't it? It's a voice that is caught in its own noise, which by by what I mean by by that I mean the noise of the intellect rattling around inside their heads. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, you, you, you as a nation have created a very noisy sonic environment in which to live, because there are so many machines going on all the time, you know. I mean, York City is one of my favorite cities in the world and a, a second home to me. Um, but wow, is it noisy? Yes, it is. And what I'm doing is using a totally different frequency because I'm using the the notion that I was sharing earlier about persona. That if we're really centering our voices, then if, as Rumi said, if words arise from the heart, they enter the heart. If words arise from the tongue alone, they don't pass beyond the ears.
0: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, you you want whatever you say to have weight and to for there to be, you know, a belief behind it. You can't just, you know, go in blind. And, you know, the I want to go back to uh, Diana again. And this, you know, is something that You've talked about that. You've act- you actually turned her down as a client, I believe it was uh, twice before you uh, actually began working with her, because you you said you didn't want to be roped into the circus of the royal family and everything that was going on. I mean, ultimately, did you get roped into that, or were you able to keep? It was
1: only once, before, it only once before. It's only once. Excuse me. To say twice. <laughs> well, you know, can you remember the circus that was going on around her?
0: Uh, Fairly fit- decently. Decently it was appalling.
1: It was really appalling. And the criticism that was afforded her. I mean, it was just poor lady. I mean, really something. Yeah. And at the same time, because she was immensely inquiring about herself and wanting to empower, she chose to see a number of major holistic practitioners. mm mm-hmm. And many of those people had, when she had completed her contract with them, they sold their story to the tabloids. And I didn't want to get involved in that because she was, her being was scarred with betrayal. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, and largely, you know, of course, starting off with the issue of betrayal from the abandonment of her own mother when she was six. And and I could see all of this because Mm -hmm. um, clients of mine or friends of mine were happy too, you know, they're, um, members of that, that particular social echelon. Yeah. Uh, and on the second occasion, a very remarkable woman for all of us, and certainly a very remarkable woman in my life, in my life who was by the name of Mara Burney, who was a leading restaurateur here, mm-hmm. Italian. Amazing restaurant, still here, still. Her daughter's now running, because, alas, Mara's dead. Uh, and when Mara, in the 60s, would be called by the Stones, the Rolling Stones, after a concert, because Nick loved her food, saying, Mara, could you make us pasta after a concert? Yeah. And Mara would get up at three o'clock in the morning and make them pasta. That's the sort <laughs> of woman that she was. She was like this extraordinary mother that loved yeah. us all. Anyway, Mara called me and said, There's somebody I want you to work with. Would you be prepared? Because she'd introduced me to a number of really, you know, starry people before this. Um, And so I'd done well with these people. And therefore, you know, the responses have been Stuart's amazing and he's so kind and wise and so forth and so forth. And so I said, who is it? She said, well, just come for lunch and meet them. It'll be fine. And I said, no, darling, I can't do that. Come tell me who it is. And yeah. she said, you trust me? And I said, of course I trust you. And then she said, just come for lunch. I'll give you a wonderful lunch. And of course, her, she was beautiful and a surrogate mom, if you like, and the most amazing food. So I said, okay. So I arrived on the appointed day, and there was the head waiter, and I, whose name was Pepe, and I said, Pepe, who's Madame? He said, You'll see when you arrive. They're in the, the salon privé, you know, the private room downstairs. And I said, But who is it? He said, You'll see when you arrive. So I, you know, knock on the door, and I walk in, and there is Mara and Diana.
0: Mm-hmm. I said,
1: I, I don't believe it.
0: This <laughs> well, is a you... trap. <laughs>
1: and Diana, Diana, was. In my experience, one of the most beautiful women that I've ever seen. These blue eyes were luminous. And she got up and she grabbed my arm and said, you will work with me, won't you? She was so sweet. Uh I almost collapsed into the chair next to her and I said, yes, I will, I will. (laughs) But can we keep our relationship completely confidential? Mm -hmm. I'm not coming to KP, which is short for Kensington Palace. Come to me pay me by cash, whenever you want me, call me on cell phone, because by then we had cell phones. This was the late 90s, you know, Um, because, you know, cell phones we think have been with us forever. No, they haven't. Um, And that's what happened. We had this completely confidential relationship. So I was actually able, as a healer, to help her heal those wounds of betrayal and the wound of abandonment. It's just that she was a very, very different vessel of a being you know that she was she didn't have an academic intelligence she didn't have a cerebral intelligence she had this extraordinary intuitive intelligence and it was all to do with the compassion and the grace and the loving this unconditional loving i mean it was luminous within her and through all of the difficulty that she went through which was severe really severe i mean i was with her when we would Sometimes she would go out incognito, so she called me and said, "Can we go to the movies?" And I would say, "Well, how can we? Because you are who you are." And she would say, "Don't worry, I'm going to disguise." So she put on a wig and dark spectacles, and nobody knew. And we go to the movies.
0: Oh, that's so funny! It that's
1: was very, funny. very. It was very funny. I'd arrive in near to where she lived, and there she would be in a in a <laughs> Well, obviously not in summertime, but, you know, in wintertime or fall. Um, and we would, we, she was just hysterically funny. We would <laughs> laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. But at the same time, there was heavy, you know, to give the parlance, but there was some heavy shit going on in her life. Yeah. And all of that needed to be accomplished. You know, it needed to be defined and then proportioned within her body, within her whole, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, the way that she lived. Um, And as we saw during those last two years, her light became bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more radiant, in other words, Um, because that's one of the things that I've learned over the years, how to help somebody ignite their own radiance.
0: And I mean that, that that's beautiful I, mean, I, just, I I just have to say by the way, while you're telling that story of you know her incognito I was smiling and giggling to myself because all I could imagine was you know her taking a few extra minutes to make a decision on you know the uh, the snacks for the movie and somebody you know rudely you know trying to push her <laughs> into it and, no no it's Diana Princess of Wales, just calm yourself down for a second but yeah, I mean, you know she was I would do all the
1: talking in that situation, but I mean often often you know we rub up against people who can be intolerable yeah. and this would and people would push in front of her. But she would just always step aside. You know, there were times when we would publicly, when she was not incognito, Mm -hmm. that I would be invited to a meeting or a lunch or something. And we would leave, and the paps would be there. And I'm not talking about two or three. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about 50 or 60. And if this wasn't arranged beforehand with the press, press association, that she would try and get away as quickly as possible. So often there would be a driver that would come and bring the car to the door. But sometimes that wasn't the case. So we would run down the street and the paps would swear at her. I mean, literally, they would call her an effing, an effing bitch.
0: And sometimes they use the C word. I, I mean, that's, that's horrific. I mean, so I think about that and, you know, I think about then her just, you know, calling you and saying, Let, let's go see a movie. I'll go incognito is almost, you know, it, it, that's a true form of just escape and therapy if that's the life that you're living day to day. And uh, Unbelievable. I, I- Unbelievable, really. Uh, yeah. I'm sure. And then like, you know, th- this is the other thing that, you know, obviously, you know, look, you've worked with, you know, politicians, CEOs, change makers, actors, and, you know, all of them are people who have chosen what they want to go into. And, you know, they've made those life decisions. But when you're dealing with royalty, these people are born into it, so there's almost, you know, an added layer of I didn't choose this, you know, I, I didn't want my life to be this because when you break it down, I mean, you know, Diana is a woman who, you know, through uh, the 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 eye of the public was going through, you know, a very serious divorce at that point, and you know, basically, you know, without any moment or any, you know, uh, refuge for herself uh, during that time. So I can't imagine the strain that that would put on somebody.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I would like to think, I mean, there were a few chosen people in her life that provided her with grounding and that provided her with a really sensible containment for all of those energies. And obviously one of them was Paul, Paul Burrell, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, who, ha- who who then spoke very openly about his relationship. And obviously her death was immensely wounding for Paul. And then I believe that he overs he overstepped the breach of his professional remit as her butler. Yeah. But um, Diana, if she trusted you, she would really lean into you. So she was she was held by a number of very remarkable people who were extremely discreet and confidential, but were very like Diana. They were very loving people rather than discursive and cerebralized and full of criticism, which is, of course. You know, we know the ego games that go on when you're with very powerful people and they're trying to maneuver themselves into even greater power.
0: Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting to me, and this is just, you know, very much a question for you when you, you know, there's obviously a tremendous amount of your clients that you cannot talk about, but I can only imagine that Diana is probably one of the most visible of them. And, you know, as you, uh, as you put it, that you're able to, you were able to help ignite that, you know, fire and that radiance within her. I mean, do you consider your work with her to be some of the most impactful work that you've had in terms of how it's radiated out to the rest of the world, you know?
1: Oh, unquestionably, because of her destiny, because of who she was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the reality is that when she passed, she stirred the hearts of 5.9 billion people Yeah. during those seven days, what what were referred to by the press as the seven days of doom or the seven days of gloom, that 5.9 billion people wept. They were awakened by that huge force that emanated from her death. And I have to say that, you know, since publishing the book, which became an international bestseller in four days on Amazon, um, but, you know, there's a very active um, Facebook page, Diana, the voice of change. And I post every day and thousands and thousands of people come and leave, leave, leave little comments and mostly ladies, of course. Yeah. Uh, and I would say mostly ladies between the ages of 35 up to 80.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, the young millennials don't really know who she was. They know who Megan is, but they don't yeah. know who Diana so the effect that she has as a as a social as a, a, a piece of renaissance as a social archetypal referencing was absolutely huge and that's what i rec- that's what i recognized as soon as i met her that on a prophetic level that her force in the world would be immense inestimable yeah and of course I, that was prophetic i didn't know what was going to happen I was in New Mexico working when it happened and I, you know, when I heard about her death, and I will never forget the howl that came out of me. I've never experienced anything like it. Um, unfortunately, there was a church nearby. I was with friends having brunch. And mm-hmm. I just looked over somebody's shoulder who was reading USA Today. And of course, yeah. we all know the quality of USA Today. And on the front page, there was Diana who's dead. And this howl came out of me. And there, there was a church, and a Roman Catholic, obviously being New Mexico, and I rushed in. And the priest was just standing there. There was nobody there. I think he just finished mass. And he just held out his arms. And I, I, I literally fell into his arms and wept. Was when exploding. was the last time
0: you, you had seen her? How, how long had it been?
1: It was about a week before. And um, I don't talk a lot about the conspiracies, but what comes to my mind is that she'd experienced such odd phenomenon Mm -hmm. or phenomena um, in the sense that her car brakes would fail suddenly. Unfortunately, she wasn't injured. Um, Her cell phone would go missing. Unusual things would happen. She felt that she was being chased by people. Fortunately, she was an amazing driver and she knew London really well, so she could just you know, lose them, sometimes just by putting her foot way down on the acceleration, you know? Um, Which, of course, in many ways was illegal, but she just needed to get away. So there was something really going on. And when she met Dodie, Dodie was this extraordinary, charming, loving man. And he's a sweetheart, was a sweetheart. And um, when she went away with him, she felt so protected and held. Were they going to marry? No. Was she pregnant? No. But I remember she said to me, um, when I go away, I want to take something of yours because it'll be something that I can leave. And if anything happens to me, I said, what do you mean nothing's going to happen to you? You can have a wonderful time yeah I was so happy for her that she was going to be looked after, and of course the you know the security around the al fayyad family was extraordinary because although they were commercial princes, they weren't stately princes right. um, but, you know, one all, one knows the sort of security around many of the potentates in in Arabia you know mm-hmm. and um and I gave her men are from Mars, women are from Venus by John Gray, yeah. and you know when I saw the movie of the last day of Diana, there was the book on the table beside the bed oh, in the God. suite in the Ritz. So I knew that she was leaving me a sign and that it was, you know, it was a conspiracy to murder her.
0: As an absolute tragedy, it's an absolute, absolute tragedy. and. Let's, I want to move forward just a little bit and let's talk about the Diana Hart project, because that's something that, you know, I know you said that the book is really the beginning of this, you know, great, much larger project. I'd like to learn more about it.
1: Well, she wanted, and I, you know, I feel she wants, I mean, I feel she's very, very much with us. You know, there are, I get emails from women all over the world saying, I feel that Diana's talking to me, you know, that they were so touched then, but 23 years later, they still feel that they're being touched. And one of the great things that needs to be healed is the trauma that, that many people felt at that moment of her dying. So that it seems that they breathed in the startle reflex and that trauma is still within. So that needs to be healed because there are thousands and thousands and thousands, maybe millions of women in the world who are traumatized by Diana Going. Now Diana, as we're recognizing, was an archetypal vessel through which the divine feminine speaks. And so she's one of the many vessels that um, that are around. We've already referred to Jacinta Arden. This is a very remarkable human being who holds a level of compassion in her soul, in her heart, which is remarkable, we talk of it. And yet we're also seeing as a politician that she's really smart and she's being able to equivocate extraordinary, or mitigate extraordinary changes of political circumstance. And what she's done in a year's worth of premiership is untold in relation to many of the other administrations that exist around the world, more and more and more, incidentally, who are being governed by women. Mm -hmm. So that's remarkable. Particularly in Europe, in Central Europe, there are four or five besides Angela Merkel who are not alpha female, but are very feminine, feminine, you know, very extraordinary. Um, and so the Diana Heart Path is a movement to draw all of these wonderful women into a communion where we share our love for Diana, but also about the changing circumstances of our existence, because there's something huge going on in our world at this time, right? There it's is. all change. Mm-hmm. And so how do we deal with that change? And so, for example, about three months ago, I set up a series of dialogues called Deep Dialogues, um, which happens every Monday and is, you know, streamed, live streamed onto Facebook. And I asked some of my charms, you know, some of the really extraordinary people like Jean Houston, who Deepak refers to as grandmother USA. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jean, who I've known for some time, came and spoke with me in dialogue. Ian Sand came on, and also Dr. Christiane Northrup. These, these are all on the website, Diana, the Voice of Change. And so Di- the Diana Heart Path will be a movement where women can feel that they're unified in a communion, but also learning something about the nature of change, because it seems that we are ill-positioned to deal with what fundamental change is all about. And at the moment, everything is changing.
0: Yes, it is. Yes, it is. All right. And then (laughs) I I have to ask this question because, you know, look, you've been doing this now for over 40 years and it's it's both – an incredibly impactful role that you play in the world in, you know, you helping people to find themselves and to, to get their – their radi- to radiate their light and their power. And so when some when a movie like The King's Speech comes out, do you look at that and you're like, this is kind of an oversimplification of what I do? Or do you look at that and being like, yeah, this is good and this is a good message for people to understand of this is this is what I do and this is what people like me do out there?
1: The latter. I agree with the latter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought it was an extraordinary film. And um, I would love to have been the dialect coach or the voice coach on it. Um, I thought it was extraordinary. I mean, I I know the voice coach who, you know, was... Was a student of mine a long
0: time ago. Did you slash um, his tires when he got the job, and you did not?
1: No, 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 no. no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's my other thing, you know, like the, the series, The Crown. I was asked if I do that, but I already had a job lined up on it, it, on Broadway. So I said, no, I'm really sorry, I can't do it. Uh, but I and then recommended one of my people, you know, who did it and did an the most amazing job. So no, ah. no, 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 no. I mean, I've I've had some extraordinary trophies and laurels given to me over the years. Um, you know, sometimes we make mistakes. You know, I would love to have been involved in the King's Speech. I would love to have been involved in the in the first part of the Crown. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really enjoy the second. I thought the first part was extraordinary because that's what I was brought up in. I mean, my dad was a royal servant, so he, he found the late King dead. You know, he woke him up in the morning, um, and he was dead. And so when I saw all of that in the first series of the Crown, I was deeply, deeply touched because the vibration of it yeah. was so as it was.
0: Yeah. And then
1: we started to get into the second series became slightly lampooning Mm -hmm. of what the members of the royal family were all about, particularly in relation to Margaret. And, um, yeah, I mean, I feel that's much more to do with some of the casting, you know, the casting (laughs) as in the first series. I thought Claire Foy was just amazing
0: she's so good so good Uh, i'm actually i'm watching the first season of it i i got into the show very very late but i i love it it's so good it's so well made it's so well done and you know it's i i think one of the things that's so powerful about it is that you're you're seeing at least you know the uh the quote-unquote hollywood portrayal but of the human side of the royal family which is something that you don't necessarily
1: see I hear you. I feel that that's its redeeming feature, isn't it? It's a social document. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to to just quickly echo the substance of Diana, the voice of change. She changed the whole of the establishment, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, apropos what the royal family is all about, what the monarchy is all about, what patriarchy is all about. Uh, And that's what the book is really evincing. It's exploring all of those aspects of the patriarchy. Coming back to what we were just saying about the King's speech, we began to see the human side of a very removed, immensely shy man. And the dynamics very beautifully conveyed. And then we come to the crown and the wonder of the relationship between Claire and Matt Mm -hmm. as Elizabeth and Philip. It was just so beautifully done. Um, but a social document so that evidently there's something within these very um, high degree of pedigree, you know, these high pedigree social situations that need to be explored. Um, I don't use the word exposed, but need to be explored so that we can begin to realize that the hegemony, you know, the social system of the hegemony is made up of a group of people who are just like you and I. Yeah. And that was the great gift of Diana, of course.
0: Do you think Diana knew you know the 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 breadth and the impact of the influence that she was having while she was still alive?
1: Well, she saw it wherever she went, but being the humble, sensitive, intuitive empath that she was, it was always a question of. Reminding, you know, I mean, I, I do the same thing with great actors, you know, that when, when I was master of voice at Shakespeare's Globe and we would have starry people performing mm-hmm. on that stage, what you see on stage is not what's going on backstage. That is very um, true. Saying, well, you know, you know as a producer you are, you know, you're saying, but you're amazing, you look fantastic. Just breathe deeply, get centered. And they go, ah, ah, so many nerves, you know, <laughs> and then they go out there and they're just absolutely effing brilliant. you know. Yeah. Um so there is there is always the this mixture of informal and formal. What's interesting about these social documents I believe is that they're excavating they're like emotional autopsies mm-hmm. because we're beginning to see how the rigidity of formality can actually be deformalized oh, so yeah. that it becomes more human. You know I'm, I'm working with a royal prince of arabia at the moment so you know that's also within the construct of islam and um, helping them to find a way of being able to live the truth of who they are because they've been educated in the west and they've seen what western life is but within the social context of yeah. what it is to be you know what they are is is very very challenging but i believe you see it goes back to the, one of the former questions that you asked me that We choose our incarnation, the soul chooses it. So there's a reason why they're there. My job is to keep reminding them that they're amazing. And if they're not amazing, then to remind them they're not being amazing. And then what could be done is that this could be achieved to be more successful.
0: Well, Stuart, I I, I think we've talked about pretty much everything, so you know, I I wanted to say thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about Stuart, visit his website at www.dianathevoiceofchange.com where you can book a session with him, learn more about him, buy his books, all of which are available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Follow him on Twitter at Stuart Pierce and on Facebook at Stuart Pierce Master of Voice. Stuart, again, it was a total pleasure chatting with you today, and seriously, you're welcome back anytime uh everybody it's thanks absolutely uh thanks for listening everyone if you like what you heard or had any questions please email me at info at the again that's info at the don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and a comment i love hearing what people have to say you can follow me on twitter at sprucey s-p-r-u-s-y-b-o-y where i post the latest news and announcements for the show thanks so much everyone stay safe and healthy out